Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, starving, hysterical, naked, dragging themselves through the Negro streets at dawn, looking for an angry fix. Angel-headed hipsters burning for the ancient heavenly connection to the starry dynamo in the machinery of night. Those are the first words of Allen Ginsberg's famous poem, Howl. You might be familiar with the poem. You might be familiar with Allen Ginsberg. But you might not be familiar with the efforts to censor this poem. I am Nico Perino, and I am the host of So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. And today we are discussing those efforts to censor Howell. And I am joined by our frequent, so to speak, podcast guest, Ron Collins. He is a First Amendment free speech scholar and the author of many books, including the book that will be the focus of our conversation today. It is a co-authored piece. The book is called The People Versus Ferlinghetti, The Fight to Publish Allen Ginsberg's Howell, and he wrote it with David Scover, who is a professor of law at Seattle University School of Law. Rana, as I said, has been on this podcast many times, most recently with David Scover to discuss their last book called Robotica, which is about artificial intelligence and free speech. But Ron has been on this podcast before then to talk about the comedian Lenny Bruce, the Espionage Act of 1917, the Supreme Court case Levy Tam, and much else. If you haven't heard those podcasts before, I, I recommend you check them out. But today we are talking about beatniks. If you don't know who beatniks are, this is kind of the literary generation that sprung up after World War II. Uh, they shaped the culture. They wrote many famous uh, works of poetry, many famous novels. And of course, today we're talking about that piece of poetry written by Allen Ginsberg that some have called the most important poem written in the 20th century or Many more have called it the most important poem written after World War II. And we're talking about the efforts in San Francisco in 1957 to censor this poem, to prevent its distribution. And the courageous people, not only that supported Allen Ginsberg through his trials and tribulations, but the people who had the courage to fight against that censorship and to get this important work out to the public, most notably Lawrence Ferlinghetti, who was the owner of City Lights, a bookstore in San Francisco that partnered, or some might say was a co-conspirator with Allen Ginsberg in distributing this work to the masses. We're talking about these folks with Ron Collins. Um, but before we begin, I want to uh, let you all know about something else that Ron Collins and the Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education have going on, something free speech, First Amendment related. That is First Amendment news. If you're a longtime follower of Ron's, you might know that he puts out a weekly or sometimes more than weekly email that just digests uh, the things that are happening in the First Amendment world, current cases, articles being published. Sometimes these emails feature essays on First Amendment topics by distinguished scholars in the field. And previously, it had been hosted at Concurring Opinions. Uh, but now it is featured within FIRE's website at thefire.org. And if you go to thefire.org and you go up to the News and Media section and click on uh, Ron Collins' First Amendment News. You can find a digest of all of Ron Collins' First Amendment News articles, some essays written, and an option to subscribe to Ron's newsletter. 
It's a pleasure to have this conversation with Ron. We recorded it at Fire's offices on Monday, April 28th. And this one was actually videoed too. We video periodically uh, these podcasts and you can find them all at thefire.org or at youtube.com slash thefireorg. Again, that is youtube.com slash thefireorg. And we have a playlist devoted to all these, so to speak, episodes where you can either get the audio or if we have video available, the video of the podcast. So without further ado, uh, let's jump into the beat generation, the beatniks uh, with Ron Collins. Were you always a fan of the beatniks? No, no. I, I wasn't a fan of the beatniks nor of uh, Lenny Bruce. They were really pre- before my time, although I'm pushing 70, but still they were before my time. Um, no, we just stumbled upon them uh, many years ago um, looking for a first They're poets, story. right? Yeah. Yeah. The Beats, uh, Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, you know, that crowd. This is the 1950s. Right. Yeah. So I was born in 49, so they're a little before my time. I always um, kind of had a hard time understanding the Beatniks, and it seems to me that mostly stems from the fact that I don't have really have a strong connection to the era in which they were writing. Like I, I reread Allen Ginsberg's Howl, which is kind of the central poem of this book. And it, it just seems like so much of it is New York circa 1950. And I, I mean, how does, let's start with talking about Howl. Okay. So a lot of folks think that the counterculture begins with Bob Dylan and, you know, that generation in the sixties, it really begins in the fifties. All right. Uh, when, uh, societal norms are called into question. Societal norms having to do with capitalism, having to do with equality, having to do with homosexuality, having to do uh, with obscenity. Uh, it's really the beats that step on the stage, the cultural stage. And first, for the first time, at least in contemporary history, uh, or more modern history, I should put it, um, challenge uh, those conventional norms. So um, before there was Bob Dylan, there was Allen Ginsberg. And uh, Jack Kerouac and and that whole generation of, of folks um, and poetry and literature were their uh, main uh, venues. Of course, the mm-hmm. whole idea of beat music also comes into play, um, kind of riffs on various types of jazz music and what have you. But um, like I said, before there was Once Upon a Time, I Dressed So Fine, I Threw the bum a, dime, a Bum a Dime in My Prime, before Bob Dylan said those incredible words or something to that effect in uh, Like a Rolling Stone. Uh, there was Allen Ginsberg uh, and the opening lines of, of Howl, I Saw the Best Minds of My Generation Destroyed by Madness. What prompted Allen Ginsberg to write Howl? And actually, it's, it's referred to as Howl now, but its original title was Howl for Carl Solomon. Yeah, in an earlier book with David Scober, we a long book about five hundred pages called Mania, uh, and Mania is basically the story of the Howl poem, um, and the Howl poem is is really autobiographical. Uh, I mean, it took us about five hundred pages to kind of put the whole story together. Uh, it's an incredible poem, and it really begins uh, with a car chase um, in the. Um, in the early 50s when Allen Ginsberg is uh, kind of with some criminal types, uh, people who rob banks and uh, trade in heroin. And in any event, he got to know them because they were kind of countercultural types, as it were. Um, and uh, it turns out that one time they had to move some heist and uh, they were going to move. Uh, uh, Allen wasn't responsible for um, uh, any of the thefts, but he went along with them for a car ride when they were moving some of the 
um, materials, some of the goods that they had stolen from one place to another because um, the police were hot on their tail. And uh, it, it, the car turns the wrong way down the one-way street. And of course, at the end of the one-way street is a police car and the police car chases them. And it's a high-speed chase. It ends in a car crash. Allen Ginsberg is caught. Um, he has to plead a defense. Um, and thanks to some professors at Columbia University, where he was then attending, uh, they cop a deal. And the deal is, is that instead of going to jail, he'll go to an asylum uh, a mental asylum. How old was he at this point? Uh, early 20s. And uh, it is there in the asylum that he meets Carl Solomon, who really, really was, uh, 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 had a maniac quality about him. And they strike up a friendship. And then um, while Allen Ginsberg is there, the psychologist and psychiatrist discover that he's uh, gay. And of course, uh, they see that as a psychological illness. So he is, quote unquote, treated for that illness. And then um, he's released, but on a condition. Uh, there was a lot of bad influence, they thought, for him to continue to live in New York. So he had to go someplace safe, and they recommend uh, San Francisco. And and it's there he meets Lawrence Ferengetti. Uh, he meets, well, he first comes there, he's going to go straight. Uh, he's has a job at an advertising agency. Uh, he's dated a woman. He dates, tells Jack Kerouac, this is really good. I'm into it. And then one day he walks into a gallery. He sees the painting of a young uh, man uh, in the nude uh, who's gay. One thing leads to another. He falls in love breaks up with the woman, leaves the ad agency, walks into this brand new bookstore that's open um, called City Lights, uh, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, uh, was then the co-owner, soon became the sole owner. And um, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, um, who was the that time the owner of the bookstore, uh, had let, just launched a pocketbook poet series. And Allen Ginsberg... Uh, the two of them get to know each other. Allen Ginsberg proposes a collection of poems, and Ferlinghetti takes a pass. But that wasn't the end of the story. No, it wasn't. Allen Ginsberg was pretty down and out at this point. I read in your book that he was kind of at his last straws. He had like $30 in his bank account. <laughs> You're right, right. No, I mean, uh, yeah, the, the, the sanity didn't last too long. Uh, you know, Allen Ginsberg, this kind, uh, gentle but but he was a maverick. I mean, he was an out uh, he was an outsider. I don't think he ever felt comfortable being standing in line, uh, you know, in conventional line with anybody. Um, and uh, so, but he strikes up a, a friendship with Lawrence Ferlinghetti, who's a kindred spirit, but in many respects a very very different person. Um, unlike a lot of the Beats, who were uninhibited and. And at times, almost suicidal. I mean, some of them were involved in antics that took their life, uh, and some of that is recorded in in Howell. Um, and uh, did drugs and a lot of very unconventional things, and also illegal things. Lawrence Ferlinghetti, a PhD from the Sorbonne, a businessman. Uh, yes, he's radical. Uh, yes, he is has his socialist and anarchist credentials. Uh, but he's not—he's not a crazy man. I mean, he's not going to get uh, plastered on alcohol and stick his head out a subway car at a high speed and be decapitated, as happened to one of Alan's friends. Um, so he was, uh, although he hung with the Beats and he very much supported them and supported their literature, 
Lawrence Ferlinghetti, who had also served in the military during the Second World War, was a very different sort of man. Was he a maverick? Absolutely. In fact, that's the first word of our... Yeah, American book. maverick. Yeah, yeah. Why would he commission a poem from Allen Ginsberg. Was Allen Ginsberg known at that time? <laughs> Allen Ginsberg was, what, 29 years old, down and out, <laughs> and Lawrence Ferenghetti to kind of launch pocketbooks, more or less, right? Yeah, no, he no, no, he launched, he, no, he launched it more, no less, just, <laughs> just more. <laughs> what, um, why, why would Allen Ginsberg be that person? Well, remember, the first set of poems that Allen pitched to him, he took a pass on. Lawrence Ferenghetti um, was, among other things, a, a, a businessman, and I say that in a very uh, respectful sense. Um, you know, he wasn't going to, I mean, yes, the poems had to be radical. Yes, they had to have cultural commentary, okay? But they also had to be good, at least as he saw them. And so um, he had started, Allen Ginsberg had come to him and said, you know, I have this other poem, Howl, and he'd been working on it. He he was hadn't completed it, and Fairland Getty told him, you know, I'm very interested in this. Keep me posted on it. And indeed, Alan did keep him posted on it. And it was the beginning of a friendship and beginning of a, um, a, a arrangement between the two gentlemen, which would end as did almost all of the contracts in those days with Lawrence Ferlinghetti, in nothing more than a handshake. Let me talk or let us talk about Howell for Carl Solomon. Tell me about that poem. What's in it? What's the message? What's of it? not in it? Yeah, I know <laughs> it's long and it can yeah. seem kind of like stream of conscious to yeah. a lay reader. Yeah. So let me just tell you a little bit before how it comes into being. Um, well, he met Carl Solomon. Yeah, he met Carl Solomon, but it's autobiographical. I mean, if you just hear a particular line on its face or read a particular line on its face, it may not make much sense to you. You know. Uh, you have to kind of know the backstory to get some feel for uh, what was involved um, uh, in this poem, that, which you said was originally the title was, um, you know, Howl for Carl Solomon. And then Ferlinghetti had suggested that it just be Howl. And then on the title page that had the dedication. Was Carl Solomon anyone of note or was he just some guy you met in the asylum? <laughs> <laughs> was he, uh, he was a pretty crazy guy. Yeah. Uh, would uh, throw potato salad, uh, you know, as an art form um, and what have you. Uh, would end up himself writing uh, some um, uh, a book or two. Uh, to be honest with you, nothing of any great moment. Um, but there was something about Carl Solomon's madness, something about this uninhibited side of him, something about him being a code breaker uh, that very much appealed to Allen Ginsberg. So we were going to get into the backstory of the poem. Mm -hmm. now. Yeah. So what is, the again, the message of the poem? There's many messages. For one, one of the things that's very important uh, in, the, in the poem is um, you know, we all think that Stonewall is the kind of the birth of the um, uh, gay rights movement. Uh, not to take any credit away from it. Obviously, it was a very significant moment. Um, but how, among other things, and I have to say among other things, is basically uh, Allen Ginsberg in 1956 and 1957 outing himself in a blatant way as a homosexual man. I mean, this just had never been done. I mean... As a practical matter, in 1956, gay people um, didn't exist. And I say didn't exist in the sense that they were closeted, right? You went into bars where 
you had to knock on the door to get in and you had to know a certain password and what have you. So for somebody to openly out themselves in a poem, um, this was just unheard of. It's also, in many respects, a critique of capitalism, a very uh, a strident critique of capitalism. It's also a story about the lives that intersected with Allen Ginsberg's, some for better, some for worse, some for glory, some for tragedy. It's all there in one, and it's also very much about his mother and his relationship with his mother. And his mother was also mad um, and, I mean, literally uh, um, had some very serious mental disorders. So all of that finds its way into Howell. And that's why the opening lines, I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness. He did. I mean, you know. So and he has this refrain in the poem, who bared their brains to heaven under yell and saw Mohammedan angels staggering on tenement roofs illuminated, who, who poverty and tatters and fantastic minds sat up all night in lofts contemplating jazz, who sat in rooms naked and unshaving listening to the terror through the wall, who demanded sanity trials accusing the radio man of hypnotism and were left with their insanity and their hands and hung a jury, who cut out each other's hearts on the banks of the Hudson, life's a drama on a great lost stage under the crimson streetlight of the moon. And then this is where we get to the homosexual part, who let themselves be fucked in the ass by saintly motorcyclists and screamed with joy, who were blown by the human angels, the sailors, the caresses of Atlantic and Caribbean love. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, we it's, can't do justice to no, Allen Ginsberg. The I reason why I, I was saying go and pounding is because at Sixth Gallery, Sixth Gallery was a carriage shop. By that, I meant at the turn of the century where you brought your carriage and horse to have your carriage repaired. It hadn't changed much by 1956. There was still dirt on the floors. But this is where uh, Howell is read for the first time. Alan Binsberg comes out in a sport coat and a tie. Uh, he, he's one of the later readers. All these poets have gotten together. Jack Kerouac is there passing around a jug of cheap red wine. And while Alan Ginsberg is reciting the poem and with each of the refrains, who this, who that, who this, you know, they're pounding their feet on the floor and Ginsburg and others are going, go, 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 go. And the momentum is just incredible. I and mean, is he kind of like screaming yeah, this poem? Yes, yes, yes. And it's in a it, rage almost. Yes, yes. And yeah. And, and it's just, it's, it's just, and of course, one of the people sitting in the back rather calmly, but taking it all in is none other than Lawrence Perlinchetti. The publisher yes. of this work. Yeah, and it's it's this magical moment. It's this pinpoint in time that changes things. Now, it needed a little bit more to make it onto the national national scene, but at this moment in time, in fact, Kenneth Rexroth, uh, a noted literary figure from the time, came up to Allen Ginsberg afterwards and said something to the effect that, you know, this is going to change your life and change our generation, something to those that effect. It's, it was just an incredible moment. I mean, a lot of people had read poems that night, but nobody was in the same universe with Allen Ginsberg. And so that night, Jack Kerouac and, and his buddies go off to one of the local hangouts to, to celebrate and get bombed. But one person doesn't. Lawrence Fairland Getty, um, he leaves, he goes home, and he... Um, dictates a telegram to Allen Ginsberg, uh, echoing the words of um, Emerson in a, in a letter to Walt Whitman, and then closed with the words, when do I get the manuscript? Mm. And thus begin. And then it's just a handshake. That's all. Yeah, that telegram is lost for, to history, though, right? Uh, that 
Um, forgive me for saying if anybody at City Lights is hearing this, that purported telegram. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to read a few more lines sure. of the poem to give people a sense of yeah. what it was. And we want them to think back to that, that reading at, what was the name of the, the place? Six Gallery. Six Gallery. And just imagine Allen Ginsberg kind of in a rage possessed. Yes. And all of the crowd stamping their feet going, go, go. Go, go, and passing the jug of wine, you know, cheap Thunderbird wine, what have you, or Gallo. I'm not sure, one of those. So the the poem, passage of it, who burns cigarette holes in their arms, protesting the narcotic tobacco blaze of capitalism. Who distributed communist pamphlets in Union Square, weeping and undressing, while the sirens of Los Alamos wailed them down, and wailed down wall, and the Staten Island ferry also wailed who broke down crying in white gymnasiums, naked and trembling before the machinery of other skeletons, watched and went away finally to find out the future, who fell on their knees in hopeless cathedrals, praying for each other's salvations. Ah, Carl, while you're not safe, I am not safe, and now you're in the total soup of time. I'm jumping around a little bit there, but you can kind of get the sense, the refrain. What would life be without poetry? I mean, really, I mean, this is the sort of thing that... It may not speak to the mind, but it definitely speaks to the heart. And that's what was happening. That was part of that magical moment that night in Sixth Gallery. And and you couldn't be there and, and be unaware that something transformative had just happened. You just the, the other thing is, is that I'm glad you read it because, uh, by the way, there's a 1959 recording of how, um, and it might even be on YouTube, that's um, really quite moving. Not the same as the, the, the Sixth Gallery one, but quite moving nonetheless. Does Ginsburg but, read it? Read yeah, it? yeah. Mm-hmm. We'll Besides try and cut it. some in here yeah, and make a note of that. Yeah, I'll show you. But the, um, the poem, it's one thing to read it. It's another thing to hear it. Because when you hear it, the ethos, the passion, the soul of the poem comes out in a way that the retina cannot capture just as it's, you know, browsing across uh, each stanza. On page 42 of your book, you go over some of the themes that are in the poem that might lead to outrage or even censorship. You talk about how it's pro-communist, how it's pro-homosexuality, pro-promiscuity, anti-capitalist, and anti-American. And Lawrence Ferlinghetti kind of predicted that something might happen once he published yeah, this book. Right. And so he calls the local ACLU. <laughs> well, right? of course, it also had some pretty colorful language in it, too, oh, yeah. right? Some of Getting which you've already read. Ass, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, right. It, uh, and uh, so, uh, yes, it was, I, um, you know, it may well have been anti-American for, um Ginsburg, I don't know. I don't think it would have been anti-American for Ferlinghetti. Ferlinghetti, it would have been Whitman-esque, Whitman-esque America, all right? I mean, remember, this man had served proudly in the Second World War. I mean, yes, he was a socialist. Yes, you know, he had this um, counterculture way about him. Uh, but I think the America of Walt Whitman would have been very much his America. So in that sense, I don't think it would have been anti-American. But uh, in any event, um, yes. Uh, so Fallon Kenny, he's a very savvy guy, you know. And by the way, he's cool. He's calm, you know. Uh, not no drama queen like these others. Um, so he decides, he, he realizes ahead of time, 
uh, that he's going to need some outside help to pull this off. Uh, that is to publish Howell and other poems as one of the pocket poet series. Uh, there were just a matter of 50 cents or something like that. And, and they're called pocket poets because you could put it in your back pocket. I mean, literally, you could and carry around poetry. Uh, by the way, City Lights was the first all paperback bookstore. You know, they, that didn't exist prior to that. So he contacts the local ACLU, Lawrence Spicer, uh, uh, there at that office. Spicer, by the way, was a seasoned constitutional lawyer, the Northern California chapter of the American Civil Liberties Union. Spicer had his own case, a loyalty case, <laughs> the same time at the U.S. Supreme Court. I mean, he had his own case involving himself, a loyalty oath case, uh, which he prevailed in. Uh, and then there was another young man named Al Bendick, had just a few months out of law school, out of a bolt. And the ACLU says, look, if you have any troubles, we'll represent you. Uh, Fairland Getty decides to have the book published abroad um, in England. Why? Uh, it's cheaper, yeah, much cheaper. Uh, but the publisher uh, had been, had run into some problems a year before publishing a magazine called Miscellaneous Man, probably a homosexual magazine. And it had been seized by customs for being obscene. Uh, so the publisher uh, said, look, you know, we don't want to get busted again or, you know, have all everything um, uh, seized by customs. So the, the colorful words that were replaced with asterisks, okay? So then the book is, um, the books are en route to the United States and customs officials see the name of the publisher, the printer, and they think, oh my God, this is the same guy that did Miscellaneous Man. And they seize all the copies of Howell, but they don't, they don't even open the boxes. They just seize them. Because it's the same printer. Yeah. And so essentially what you had was obscenity by implication. <laughs> you know. And so when it went to the United States attorney, the United States attorney said, look, I, we can't bust somebody. We can't seize goods just for asterisks. So it comes to the United States. Then Fallon Getty decides that he's going to have a printer in the United States printed, this time with the colorful words, which meant that the customs officials couldn't seize it. Um, and it seems like all's well and fine until a local prosecutor with a lot of time on his hands um, gets wind of this book. And they actually, the authorities, come to City Lights and confiscate the books. And Lawrence Ferlinghetti isn't in the store at the time, I don't well, believe. Well, you just have, this is a sting operation. <laughs> it's not yeah. undercover. They have plain clothesmen. They come out, they kind of case the place, and they can come in looking hip and beat and what have you. And uh, they get a couple of things and a copy of Powell, and they go back, and then they get a arrest warrant, and um, they come back and seize it. And uh, the clerk... Um, is arrested. Ferlinghetti is not there at the time. Now, think about the clerk being arrested. Um, it's like, I didn't publish the poem. I didn't write the poem, right? I mean, I not even read the poem. And you're arresting me, you know. Yeah, well, his name is Shigeyoshi Murao. I, I yes, might not be pronouncing uh -huh, that correctly. Yeah, also known as Shig. Shig, yeah. yeah. And you talk in the book about how, you know, I just kind of, he says he wants wanted to just live a quiet life. <laughs> right, right. Uh, listen to some music, <laughs> right. read some books. Uh, his family had been interned yeah, during right, the war. Right, yeah. And so, and it was also looked down in Japanese society yeah. to get, get arrested and oh, yeah. be jailed. And yeah. so this would be a a stain on his family. So he very much did not welcome oh, no, this no. prosecution and in a way that Lawrence Ferlinghetti said, ah, being locked up in the can, I'll get some time to read some books. That's poetry, right? Yeah. <laughs> right, no, no. <laughs> Ferlinghetti, cool, calm, kind of cool hand Luke, you know, sort of thing. Uh, by the way, San Francisco in 1957 was a very different place 
uh, you know, all these B types that were coming there were not welcome. They were persona non grata. Um, and they were seen as dirty, promiscuous, you know, anti-American, what have you. So that whole environment in San Francisco where this beat, you know, West Coast beats, the East Coast beats too, but the West Coast beat movement is starting here. Um, uh, you know, they were not welcome. And so when this case went to trial um, and this prosecutor was prosecuted for obscenity, by the way, in those days, words could be obscene. The distinction between obscenity and indecency didn't exist. Mm-hmm. So you could have something, just words in a book that were deemed obscene. And in 1956 and 1957, this just seemed like a slam dunk case, right? It was so simple that the prosecutor, when they prosecuted the case, their case was, well, here are the words, Your Honor, and then kind of res ipsa loquitur, the thing speaks for itself. They, they didn't feel they had to put on much more of a defense than that. And uh, by the way, the prosecutor, just to kind of indicate how filthy he thought all this was, uh, introduced the evidence in a brown paper bag. <laughs> Although the, there, was no, there were no pictures or anything, you know, so... Uh, and so if so the reason I mention what San Francisco was like, and David Scover and I stress this in the book, in 1956-57 was it had a lot to do with why the defense did not pick a jury. There was just no way you would want a jury from San Francisco to hear this case. So they, they, they you know, it was a roll of the dice, and they decided to take their chances with a judge. And take their chances they did. And I'm sure when they learned who that judge would be, they weren't too happy about it because this judge is... Clayton Horn. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, Probably not recognizable to any of our <laughs> listeners, but this is a Sunday school preacher yeah. who had previously sentenced someone to watch the Ten well, Commandments yeah, after yeah, shoplifting. So let me, you're cutting into my action here. Let me, <laughs> uh, yeah, so... If you were... And and hold on, before we get there, let's explain to our listeners that you can choose to have a trial by jury or you can choose to have the judge render the verdict. Right, and it would have been very dangerous to have a trial. I mean, I suspect that if they had a trial by jury, they would have been convicted. I mean, it just that's why they took... I mean, it was risky having a judge, Mm -hmm. but it was super risky having a jury. So they decided um, that they would take a judge. And by the way, when you decide you're going to have a bench trial, as they call it, a judge trial, you don't know who the judge is because they're picked by lot. And so that when the lot came up, it came up Clayton Horn. Well, who's Clayton Horn? Well, a few months earlier, Clayton Horn had a a few women, I think might have been four uh, women, appear before him for shoplifting. Uh, he very quickly found them guilty, and their sentence was to go watch the Ten Commandments, which was in the movie theaters then. And they had to go and write an essay uh, about the Ten Commandments, and um, which, by the way, was a very violent movie that had, you know, its sexual uh, component to it, what have you. But in any event, uh, they went, uh, watched the movie, had to come back in court and uh, recite the essay that they had written. This was their punishment. Horn had gotten a lot of flack in the local paper um, for this at the time. Um, they ridiculed him. They, you know, editorialized against him, which another thing I, I think is important to mention. Um, this fight for First Amendment of freedom involves a poet who's in Tangiers. 
Allen Ginsberg is nowhere. I mean, he's not around for any of this. So he writes the poem, but somebody else has taken the action. Uh, so involves a, um, a poet who's not there, a poem that's being prosecuted, uh, a clerk that's being prosecuted, a publisher, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, is being po- prosecuted, and a bookstore owner, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, who's being prosecuted. And part of that whole First Amendment mix of things was the San Francisco Chronicle. And the San Francisco Chronicle, from the outset, stood with Ferlinghetti uh, on his First Amendment claims. Um, in fact, early on, right after Ferlinghetti is um, arrested uh, and charged, charged, yes, he um, writes uh, a piece in the local paper basically telling the authorities it does he doesn't care he's not going to stop selling the book so if you just think about it this this meant they could have put him out of business and they could have put him in jail i mean and he said bring it on and he didn't just whisper it he put it in the local paper and and, and he also saw that copies of Howell remained in the storefront window while the case was being tried i mean <laughs> this is pretty ballsy Right. I mean, I like to tell people we it's so easy to forget that if you believe in freedom, if you believe in the First Amendment, you have to understand there's an element of risk. Mm-hmm. If you're not willing to buy into the risk, then there's no freedom worth protecting. Well, what did he risk here exactly? Jail he, time. He risked uh, seizing all of the books. Okay, mm-hmm. making the publication of Howell impossible, and if he continued to do so, shutting down his bookstore. Yeah, and how long did he stand to? What was the jail term for this? I mean, oh, this is a misdemeanor, but still several months. You know. Yeah. But the thing is, is if he continued to sell, then they could seek an order um, prohibiting. I mean, the whole law of prior restraint and all of these other things didn't exist. Uh, and this would have been a slam dunk case, a very easy case to get a conviction in 1957, except for one thing that had happened earlier in 1957. A few months earlier, a new Supreme Court justice had just written a majority opinion in a case called Roth versus United States. That Supreme Court justice was William Brennan. It was an obscenity case. He ruled against the rights claimant. So he ruled against the First Amendment claim. But in doing so, he did something that was extremely important. He said there's a difference between obscenity on the one hand, which is not protected, and sexual expression on the other hand, which is protected. That distinction. So it wasn't enough, you know, um, you know, if you came with some a book or a poem, it wasn't enough to say that there was something dirty in it. You had to show that it didn't have socially redeeming value. You had to show that it appealed to prurient interest, you know, these sorts of things. So as the Howell case is coming to court, this dichotomy between obscenity unprotected and sexual expression protected hadn't been tested. This is one of the first cases in the United States uh, to test it. And the judge who's charged with testing the case is Clayton Horn. And as we said, if you knew anything about Clayton Horn, why would a man who was a Sunday school preacher, right? I mean, all put aside, I mean, 
Roth versus United States. Put aside, remember, he is a municipal judge. Municipal judges are at the bottom of the judicial ladder. Dealing with fender benders, right. petty crime. Right, dog barking, nuisances, you yeah. know, this sort of thing. By the way, they don't render constitutional opinions. Um, they don't render opinions because if, well, if they did render a published opinion, there'd be no place to publish it, right? <laughs> municipal judges, their opinions, they can write them. But there's no place to publish them. Only appellate courts had them. So, you know, if you were coming into the case, why would you think, even if you had Lawrence Spicer uh, and the young Al Bendick defending you pro bono, there was one other lawyer, we'll get to him in a second. But why would you think that Clayton Horn, I mean, also think about Clayton Horn and the blowback that he would get from his congregants, from the people in his yeah. church. This couldn't have been well received by them. Well, he couldn't win no matter which way it came out. I mean, he wasn't winning in the press because right. of that Ten Commandments right. <laughs> uh, sentence. And if he if he sided with Howell or with Lawrence Ferengelity, the defense in this case, and he'd get blowback from his congregation. So let's talk a little bit about the trial. It commenced, I believe, on August 8th, 1957. And this trial lasts— I'll, I'll take your word for that. That sounds right. I, I think I put it down right. <laughs> Double-check my book and then double-check me. I hope it's a reliable source. <laughs> yeah, right? Uh, the trial lasts weeks. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Which I find just astounding. The well, Lenny of, Bruce's obscenity trial lasted months. Oh yeah, well we'll get there too because yeah, yeah right, I mean, right, right. Now Horn was involved in that case. <laughs> right. I mean, this guy, this guy didn't really know what he was getting into when he right. took the municipal municipal job. But all right, what are the, what do the defense need to prove? What does the defense need to prove in order to win this case? And well, how do they? pursue it. Well, they have to go off on sexual expression. They have to make a case that this, I mean, first and foremost, I mean, two things, it doesn't appeal to prurient interest. So is anybody going to get a sexual buzz on reading how? Mm, I don't think so. It may do many things, but, you know, uh, I don't think that's it. But they did have to establish that it had socially redeeming value. And this is, informs the witnesses they get, people with literary experience and what have you. And Lauren Spicer takes the, the lead in that. Um, Young Al Bendick is preparing. Uh, Al Bendick, again, I, I, I want to mention this name because he's a few months out of law school, but he prepares, he plays a very significant role, and that is he blends the testimony of the expert witnesses, the several expert witnesses they had, with the law. And the law was emerging then. So point by point, sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph, argument by argument, he has to build the case. And that memorandum of points and authority that the young Al Bendick will, will write proves to be very, very important. So you have Al Bendick doing basically kind of the law work. You have Spicer doing some of the oral arguments, but also getting all the expert witnesses. This is going to be very important, all right? And then you have Jake never plead guilty Ehrlich, and he's the show. This is a colorful, colorful character. Right, yeah. He's the showboat. Um, he was a very high-end attorney that did high-end cases, um, represented a lot of uh, movie stars involved in ugly divorce battles. He loved those. A lot of publicity, a lot of money, a lot of controversy. Uh, he represented, um, he, he was involved in the Chessman case, which is a very important death penalty case at the time. Uh, and he agreed to do this case pro bono. Uh, he didn't. He wasn't a constitutional law expert. He wasn't a First Amendment expert. Um, That's really something because this is a guy who, what in your book you say he charged a thousand dollars a minute for yeah. oral argument yeah. in court. He, right. His yeah. justification was, well, 
if I get you off, then you'll be free. You'll have your liberty. It'll be worth it. If I don't get you off, then you'll be jail, and it won't matter how much money well, you have. Well, he had a special rate in death penalty cases. So his cufflinks literally in 1957, literally, were $25,000 for a pair of cufflinks. Uh, he wore Italian tailored suits, uh, high-end cowboy boots, um, and he knew how to turn a phrase in a courtroom. Uh, so... Um, on death penalty cases, though, he had a special rate. So he usually charged $1,000 a minute. But in death penalty cases, it was everything you own. And his rationale, consistent with what you said, is if I win, it was worth it. And if I lose, it doesn't matter. Uh, so Jake never plead guilty, Ehrlich, or sometimes known as the master. So that's the team, Jake Ehrlich. Uh, uh, Spicer and Al, Al, Bendick. Al Bendick, and each of them performs a very important role. Why, why did Ehrlich take this case pro bono? We're not sure. Uh, uh, by the way, he um, probably the publicity. It was all over the yeah. papers. Yeah, and, they, and actually, yeah. the audience for the trial. I mean, is a who's who's of beatniks. Yeah, I mean, they're yeah. they're there supporting Lawrence Ferlinghetti, right? But who was there in a I think a velvet green sport coat and tie um and by the way there is a transcript i have to put it in quotes transcript of the howell trial that was published by jake ehrlich afterwards <laughs> but turns out of the transcript uh where lord spicer was conducting the oral arguments in a few places uh, al bendick that's not in this transcript but he did publish that afterwards. So, yeah, I think it was largely for the publicity. Um, but, you know, you put it all together. The, still, the thing is, is, you still have Judge Howell, mm -hmm. you know. Judge Horn. Um, excuse me, Judge, Judge Howell. <laughs> right, right, Judge, yeah. Ho Judge yeah. for Howell in this right, case. Yeah, right, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Judge Horn. And so uh, the case is presented. Uh, the courtrooms are packed, packed with people, getting a mm -hmm. lot of publicity. By the way, this is when the... Part of Howell's rise to national attention is the trial. The best thing that could ever happen to launch Howell to kind of give a stain power to the beat generation was this trial. Okay. And this trial now is being recorded uh, both locally and nationally. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, I mean, that's the case with most censorship. You, you try and censor it, and the thing that you're trying to censor gains greater prominence. And was it Lawrence Ferengetti or Allen Ginsberg? One of them kind of predicted this and kind of hoped for the censorship. Well, yeah. In fa uh, I mean, uh, how, uh, uh, writing to um, to Ferengetti uh, from Tangiers, uh, Allen Ginsberg uh, thought, uh, you know, this could really be bad for, for Larry, but then again, it could be really good for me, uh, yeah. you know, in the poem. Uh, I, mean, I mean, the other thing is Allen Ginsberg was a master with, when it came to uh, public relations and publicity and what have you. It just happened that this particular gig was not one that he was involved in. Well, he had probably seen cases of censorship with other beatniks, right? Because censorship was kind of common with the beatniks. Well, at the time, there was another one of his friends. Uh, I mean, Alan, uh, Jack Kerouac's Alan uh, on the Road, this incredibly popular novel had just come out. Naked Lunch is being edited, uh, Bill Burroughs' book, which itself will be prosecuted for obscenity. But the case comes to Judge Howell. Uh, some time goes by, and he issues a written opinion. I mean, just— I mean, As you said, unheard of. Typescript, and the copies were—there was nothing to Xerox. Xerox didn't exist or photocopy. So carbon copies. Uh, um, and this opinion comes out— um, 
and it it is one of the great uh, pieces of First Amendment literature. I mean, it's really, you would have never expected that this judge, not only did he vindicate the First Amendment claim, all right, that is, not only did he say to the government, you cannot prosecute this poem, you cannot prosecute this man, but he did so in ways that were far ahead of his time, far ahead of his time. Again, we're looking at you know, October of 1957. Right, here. and he did it with a certain finesse and eloquence uh, that is just hard to describe, and I'm happy to say that we had the honor of publishing that opinion in its entirety. There had been earlier versions of it, but not complete. Um, in its entirety, is an appendix to our book, and it's just it's a remarkable opinion. Well, let's read some of the opinions. Okay. You, you, as you said, the entirety of it is published as an addendum, mm -hmm. uh, but you quote from it in the in the main text. Uh, so here's some of it. The authors of the First Amendment knew that novel and unconventional ideas might disturb the complacent, but they chose to encourage a freedom which they believed essential if a vigorous enlightenment was ever to triumph over slothful ignorance. The best method of censorship is by the people as self-guardians of public opinion and not by government. He continues, life is not encased in one formula whereby everyone acts the same or conforms to a particular pattern. No two persons think alike. We are all made from the same mold, but in different patterns. Would there be any freedom of the press or speech if one must reduce his vocabulary to the vapid and innocuous euphemism? An author should be real in treating his subject and be allowed to express his thoughts and ideas in his own words. And it's with that that Lawrence Ferlinghetti and Shig, as you said, get off. Well, yeah, the case is dismissed against you. <laughs> so, uh, but the opinion really is for Lawrence Ferlinghetti. I mean, we tend to think, uh, when we think of these incredible moments in First Amendment history, um, uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Louis Brandeis, Hugo Lafayette Black, uh, William O. Douglas, William Brennan, you know, more contemporary, maybe uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy or John Roberts. Mm -hmm. But in terms of... Um, the spirit of the First Amendment, it's hard to find many lines uh, that can equal the ones that you've just read from Judge Clayton Horn. And this wasn't a precedent-setting opinion. As you no, said, they don't no. issue opinions. And it wasn't a precedent in a literal sense, but it was a precedent in a functional sense. And that is that after Judge Horn had released his opinion, first of all, all of a sudden, Howell goes national, all right? National news, all right? It is the last poem that is ever criminally prosecuted and tried in court in the United States. The last, it never will happen again. And although, remember, the, the, the legal, this opinion was not binding in the next city or county. So, I mean, if somebody had published Howell in Bakersfield, this opinion would have no precedential value. I mean, it's a municipal judge in San Francisco. Not only would it have no precedential value in any other city or county in San Francisco, it would have no precedential value in any other state. But it's amazing, after this opinion comes out, Howell is sold in Boston, Howell is sold in Chicago, Howell is sold in Alabama, Howell is sold in Nebraska. It's sold in all of these places, and yet nowhere is it. Something had changed. Um, and, and, and the thing is, is that before Bob Dylan had said, the times they are a-changing. Mm -hmm. In 1957, 
the times they were a changing. Uh, so at that point, you have Allen Ginsberg's poem Howl, and you have Jack Kerouac's um, novel On the Road, and a whole new culture is now emerging with among young people. And there was backlash in the press, as we've said. Did that prevent it or provide protection to Howell from the censorship that we saw here it will in never, San Francisco? Howell would never, as a printed matter, and I emphasize it's a printed matter because the story doesn't end because we have to come 50 oh, years yeah, we'll later. Get there. Yeah, but, but uh, no, Howell is safe. Now, of course, other publications like William Burroughs' Naked Lunch and other publications um, will uh, have to deal with censors. But um, the other thing was is that Judge Clayton Horn gave staying power to Justice Brennan's um, Roth versus Young. I mean, really, Roth does not kind of come into its day until years later in Miller versus California. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we don't think of Roth as being a good First Amendment. Opinion yeah, no, generally. no, it's an improvement in right. some sense. Well, it was, it was, it was William Brennan being Machiavellian, mm-hmm. rule against the rights claimant, but uh, open up. Um, the uh, uh, the First Amendment jar, if you will. And uh, that dichotomy is extremely important. And so here you have it being, as far as we know, this is the first case to kind of put the Roth test to work. And if truth be known, they went beyond the Roth test. I, I, I would be amiss if I did not say, despite the eloquence and the soundness of or notwithstanding the eloquence and soundness of Judge Horn's opinion, it was substantially influenced and made possible by the handiwork of of Al Bendick, um, who was a uh, uh, um, who would, years later would have some pretty famous clients uh, in San Francisco uh, as well. Clayton Horn, the municipal judge, again, is such a fascinating character. Do we have any insight into his mind in writing this opinion? And I ask that because Sunday school preacher, did, did he actually believe what he was saying about the First Amendment? I, every, there's every, he took this very seriously. He spent an enormous amount of time. He read, read Howell. Yeah, he not only read Howell, he read Howell carefully. I just can't he went it. and went, read Supreme Court opinions. He went and read a lot of literature. Um, uh, he took this very seriously. It took him months. Um, for whatever reason, uh, you know, was it a, um, you know, I got a bad rap in the press and now I need something to kind of improve my record. Uh, was it that maybe, uh, was it that, or he really believed this and this was really an eye-opening moment for him. All right. And if it was, and I, I think there's a lot to be said about that. You don't kind of write these this wasn't a mechanical opinion. Yeah, right? this is the language of someone, of a believer. Yeah. And the thing is, is that re- what would have been typical in this case is to say, you come up to the bench and, you know, you have the defendant stand and you say, guilty or not guilty. And you pound the gavel and that's it. That, that's how municipal, municipal judges hear scores of cases in one day. I mean, you know, so what it would have been, I imagine too, I hadn't thought about this, Nico, before this, but my guess is my colleagues, his colleagues probably wouldn't have been too happy either because this has taken a lot of time on the docket, which means their case, yeah, their caseloads are going to be heavier because Horn's there, you know, uh, deciding this case and 
really, Clayton? You're writing an opinion? What's that about? I mean, so this couldn't have been well-received by his colleagues. Um, But he did, correct me if I'm wrong, he did oversee another First Amendment case <laughs> later. I mean, right. you have we've, we've talked in a previous podcast right. about the trials of Leonard right. Bruce, yeah. uh, another book that you've written. With and, David Scover. With David Scover, yes, yeah. of course. We yeah. don't want to forget David, who's also appeared on this podcast <laughs> right. with you to talk about robotica. But yeah. uh, Lenny Bruce was brought up on obscenity charges in, in San, San Francisco, Francisco, and Clayton Horn was on that case, too. Well, he'd, uh, he gets Al Bendick to represent him. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lenny does. Yeah, Lenny Bruce does. And um, Bruce decides that he wants a jury trial. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. and and he wants to by the way, Lenny Bruce had hung around also in City Lights Bookstore. And so he knew about the Beats. He knew Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Um, and so he decides that he wants a jury trial. Bendix says, no, 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 no. This is not a good idea. This is not a good idea. You know, we, we could easily get Judge Horn and he's the guy you want. And Lenny says, no, no, I want a, a, a jury of my peers. All right. I want that people. And Bendix says, you're crazy. The people will rule against you. Right. They don't. They didn't like the beats in 57 and they don't like your foul mouth now. Yeah, right. your foul mouth comedy. For those right. of you who don't know, Lenny Bruce is right. a famous comedian yeah. in the 1960s. Right. Also infamous comedian. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, uh, but, you know, he decides not to uh, take his lawyer's advice. He has a jury trial and the judge presiding over the case, Clayton Horn. As it turned out, but for Clayton Horn, Lenny Bruce would have been found guilty. The jury was polled afterwards. They found him not guilty, but they were polled afterwards. And they said they were ready to a person to convict him. The only reason they didn't, the sole reason, the main reason, was the fact that the jury instructions that Judge Horn had given them were so restrictive that given the facts of the case and the way that Al Bendick had argued the case, there was no way that they could get around finding anything except a not guilty. So had it not been for Clayton Horn, uh, chances are excellent that Lawrence Felton Getty would have been convicted and um, Lenny Bruce would have been convicted as well. And this is a case in which Al Bendick or Lenny Bruce had representation the whole time. This wasn't one of those cases where he threw out his lawyer. No, 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 no. Which would come later. Or decided to argue the case himself, which is really crazy. But, uh, you know, and then Clayton Horn just vanishes um, into um, obscurity. Uh, By the way, the way we first came across the Howell story was that when we were doing the Lenny Bruce book, we got to meet Al Bendick. And Al Bendick was, he, just, he saved everything. So Is he, he still alive? Uh, no, he died several years ago. There's a picture of you yeah. with him in, yeah. here in 2013. Yeah. yeah. Uh, just a great, a great man. Uh, and I cannot, we cannot say enough. We got to know him personally. But in any event, he gave us a wealth of information on the Lenny Bruce book. And then when we finished that, he said, you know, if you ever want to do another book, uh, I've got everything on the Howell trial. And um, so we had written a little bit about the Howell trial in um, in Mania, uh, a book that we did, which is really the backstory of of uh, the Howell trial. Uh, but uh, you know, Lawrence Ferlinghetti on March twenty fourth turned a hundred. So several months ago, we decided that um, it would be a good idea to pay a tribute to him as not simply as a poet, because we our concern was 
uh, that here was a publisher and a bookseller, all right, who took a very courageous stand. And we thought that we, having no background in literature or poetry, our contribution could be to highlight his importance in First Amendment history. It's amazing he's still alive. 100. He is. He is. Uh, Larry, and if you're in this, this is a shout out to you. Uh, he just published another book, too. Right? He did. It was yes, his called, final words. It's, uh, well, I wouldn't say final until, you know. Uh, uh, Isn't that I was publisher pitched it, though? I'm, I remember, it was called Little Boy. Uh, and it's a novel, autobiographical novel, uh, that came out uh, this year. And uh, by the way, we were in City Lights Bookstore um, on March 24th for the celebration, and it was such so wonderful. Hundreds and hundreds of poets and others had came out. People were reading poetry in the, in the streets. It was terribly exciting uh, to be at City Lights on March 24th to celebrate Lawrence Ferlinghetti's uh, 100th birthday. Yeah, the the publisher of Little Boy describes it as a story steeped in the rhythmic energy of the beats, gleaming with Whitman's visionary spirit, channeling the incantatory power of Prost and Joyce. And as the publisher says, this is Lawrence Ferlinghetti's last word. I don't know if that means it's the last word he'll ever provide or yeah, if it's the last we'll, word on we'll, his life. We'll, we'll, we'll see. Uh, but it wasn't the last word about the Howl poem and the First Amendment. Yes. Because, go ahead. In 2007, right. it, as you describe in the book, there was a howl for liberty. Right. This is the 50th anniversary of Howl. And uh, David Scover and I had been thinking about this, and we thought um, uh, that we got a posthumous pardon for Lenny Bruce, mm-hmm. uh, thanks to uh, Bob Cornerveer and others. Uh, Bob Cornerveer, the lawyer on the posthumous pardon case. Um, but we thought, you know... Um, Howell, in 2007, was, it was illegal uh, during daylight hours, um, that's 8 to 10 or 11, never sure which, but uh, it was uh, illegal to read Howell on broadcast radio or television. Mm-hmm. Uh, the indecency doctrine uh, had, uh, had, was well in force. Uh, there was FCC versus uh, Pacifica, the Seven Dirty Words case. George Carlin, uh, Seven Dirty Words. Yeah, yeah. George Carlin. So uh, since Howell had some colorful words in it, uh, though it had been aired on radio in the 50s and early 60s, uh, but by 2007 it was illegal and uh, you could be punished with heavy fines. Uh, I had, uh, along with David Scover, we had reached out to Bob Cornerbeer and some others to say, look, uh, you know, let's, let's test this. Let's test this. Uh, and um, so along with Lawrence Farrell and Getty and others, uh, we went to Pacifica Radio uh, in um, San Francisco. Uh, and um, we wanted to see if they would be willing to um, uh, play how, uh, you know, the, the 1959 recording, if they would be willing to do that. And, um, you know, it was... It was uh, uh, Janet Coleman over at WBAI uh, Radio. And Janet is a very feisty First Amendment persona. And I think she was ready to go to the mat. And Pacifica Radio had always been supportive of Ferlinghetti, supportive of free speech. Uh, And we said, look, we've got the attorneys. They're going to come in and, you know, they'll even do it pro bono for you. Let's test this. Well, they got thinking about it, their lawyers, uh, you know, 
as my father used to say, if you want to ruin a deal, bring in the lawyers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, but you know, listen, uh, it's one thing for us to say we want you to do this and we've got your back. But in case you lose, uh, you will pay a very steep fine, and this could be the end of you your. Could have radio. found funders that would be willing to. The fine would that. have been very substantial, oh, okay. and um, hundreds of thousands of dollars per word. Oh, jeez! And so <laughs> and for a poem like this, yeah, that'd be right, a lot of hundreds right. of thousands of dollars. Yeah, and 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 then they could lose their license. Mm-hmm. Uh, Not and, worth it. And so they decided. Um, uh, I think left to herself, Janet would have. Done it. Done it. But the lawyers uh, had counseled and said otherwise. So Janet came up with this idea that we'd have this tribute uh, to Lawrence Ferlinghetti, and Ferlinghetti would be interviewed, and the poem would be uh, aired, uh, the 1959 version that Allen Ginsberg had recorded, uh, but it would be done on internet radio. And uh, so, uh, and a transcript of that interview with Lawrence Ferlinghetti and Janet Coleman uh, is appended to our book. And so, uh, there's still a fight to be fought. Uh, yeah. It's still contraband on broadcast and uh, broadcast radio and television, although it can be read on cable television. Um, and it can be read, obviously, on... Uh, Some of these internet. FCC rules are just so ridiculous in they today's are. day and age. With they the internet are. and cable television, it just doesn't... They don't make any sense anymore. Yeah, I mean, you could watch uh, uh, porn on your television. And, you know, when you're clicking, does anybody know that they say, oh, honey, darling, sweetheart, whatever your phrase is for your significant other, uh, we're going to cable now, tell the children to leave the room. I mean, you know, it it just doesn't happen that way. But uh, a fight remains to be fought. Um, Well, there was a fight for the rest of Allen Ginsberg's life. I mean, he was a free speech champion for the rest of it. He's also happened to be good friends with Fire's co-founder, Harvey Silverglade, and his wife, Elsa Dorfman. Uh, Errol Morris just made a documentary uh, called The B-Side about Elsa Dorfman's photography in which Allen Ginsberg is featured very prominently. Uh, You know, that sort of circle understood free speech and they understood the stakes because they took the risks. Well, on this particular one, Alan didn't. <laughs> you know, he left that to. to uh, uh, I suspect if he was in San Francisco, if truth be known, he would have been happy to step up. Uh, but this. But you was, take risks insofar as if you lose, no one's going to be willing to publish a work like that. Right. Again. Well, the, the, also the thing is, in, in, in fairness to Alan, um, to bear his soul the way he did in this poem mm-hmm. was really remarkable, and it is really uh, just a vibrant and courageous statement of I'm gay and I'm proud and I'm going to speak up and I will howl from you know the top of my lungs uh, and from the rooftops in 1956 I'm sorry people just didn't do that then and uh, and so it took on the one hand a howler like Allen Ginsberg and it took a cool calm bookstore owner book publisher like Farron Getty with a lot of backbone and you put them together and you have, you know, the story of how and its publication and its vindication and the judge who made it all possible. Yeah. Unfortunately, Allen Ginsberg is no longer with us. Lawrence Farron Getty is the only one really left standing. Right, uh, right, Because, right. you know, they died in old age. Allen Ginsberg had liver cancer. Yeah. Um, There's an incredible photo of Ginsberg and Bob Dylan uh, at, in, at um, sitting in front of uh, uh, Jack Kerouac's tombstone, mm. you know. Uh, Ginsberg would have quite of an influence on uh, on Bob Dylan. 
I think one of the takeaways of this, uh, apart from all the legalese, uh, which is obviously the law is extremely important, but and that is the importance of poetry and the importance of poets being able to express themselves in unconventional ways and to kind of speak to us in ways that others can't. And um, if you believe in that sort of thing, if you believe in poetry, which was... Um, if you will, uh, offensive in ancient Greece, Aristophanes, uh, then you have to believe in the First Amendment. And poetry, like everything else in life, depends in some significant measure um, on freedom to speak one's mind uh, as one sees it and as one feels it. And I would just leave you with this, if I may. Um, something I had mentioned earlier um, I think it's too often to get easy, too easy to get on the First Amendment bandwagon and get kind of wrapped up in being righteous about it. I mean, listen, I, I'm happy to stand behind it and stand behind it in ways that offend people. But if you believe in the First Amendment, you have to believe that you're taking a risk. I mean, I think Justice Holmes in his Gitlow opinion said, lifelike law is an experiment. You know, sometimes experiments fail. All right, but we've decided, for better or worse, I think for better, to take the chance we as a people, and to err on the side of freedom. Does this mean that something will not necessarily turn out right? Does this mean that um, when you allow racists to speak uh, and bigots to speak, that bigotry will not somehow uh, have a new day in the marketplace? It may. It may. But we think that the better answer is to counter it with counter speech. And so in 1956 and 1957, um, Lawrence Fairland Getty took a chance. Um, and I think we're the better for it. Yeah, that's the theme of so much of your work. Lenny Bruce, I mean, he yeah. took a chance every time he went on stage right. and continued to right. perform his act despite knowing that there were police in the audience or police ready right. to bust him. On a previous podcast, we were talking with you about the case in Ray Anastopolo yeah. about a, a man who refused to compromise his beliefs. Yeah, and, and, and Ray Anastopolo ends up with that incredible line by Hugo Black, we must not be afraid to be free. And and it, you know, it, that is the sort of thing that should be in every civics book. If civics is still taught in high school anymore, I don't, I don't know. But, uh, you know, I think it well represents... Uh, the fighting spirit, not only of George Anastopolo, but people like Lawrence Ferlinghetti and Allen Ginsberg. Well, uh, Ron, I think we'll end it there. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show today. And thank you to you and, of course, David Scover for writing this fantastic book. It can be found wherever fine books are sold. It's a, it's a slim volume. The main text is around 100 pages. There's plenty of addenda, though, uh, for you to explore after you're done reading it. I read it in an evening, so please do check it out. And Ron, thank you again for coming on It's the been show. a delight to be here. Thank you. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash free speech talk, or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. We also take feedback at so to speak at the fire.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please, as always, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or Google. Google Play or wherever else you get your podcasts. Reviews are one of the best ways for us to attract new listeners to the show. And until next time, thank you as always for listening.